0: Uh, Welcome again to King's Cross. It's good to be with you all this morning. We're in the book of Galatians, and if it's your first time here or first time in a while, we have been walking through over the last few months Paul's letter to the Galatians. So a little uh, context on this New Testament book. It was written by the Apostle Paul. He was an apostle, which means he was a man called and commissioned by Jesus to go and take the message of the gospel, the good news of Christianity to people who hadn't heard it, to serve as a missionary, to plant churches. And he did that uh, in various places, including in the region that we know as Galatia. It's modern day Turkey. And Paul went there and he planted some churches there. And he leaves, they're healthy, they're flourishing, things are going well, and after, I don't know, a couple years, not very long, he gets word that there are some troublemakers who have come into the Galatian churches and are messing with the, the sort of pure gospel message that Paul brought to them. In particular, these false teachers are adding to the gospel. The gospel, according to Galatians, is Jesus plus nothing equals everything, but Jesus plus anything equals nothing. The, the good news that, that Jesus has already accomplished everything and we don't contribute to that, we don't add to that, we don't do anything to contribute to our salvation. We just believe it. Uh, that was the message that Paul planted this church on and not long after you have people coming in and saying, well, yes, you need to have faith in Jesus, but you also need to do some other stuff. And so for the last several weeks in the first couple chapters of Galatians, we've seen Paul reacting uh, quite directly to those false teachers and clarifying uh, for the Galatians. This morning we're picking up in chapter three, verse ten. So turn there with me to your Bibles. I'll read, turn there with me in your Bibles. I'll read Galatians three, ten through fourteen. For all who rely on the works of the law are under a curse, because it is written, everyone who does not do everything written in the book of the law is cursed. Now, it is clear that no one is justified before God by the law because the righteous will live by faith, but the law is not based on faith. Instead, the one who does these things will live by them. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us because it is written, cursed is everyone who is hung on a tree. The purpose was that the blessing of Abraham would come to the Gentiles by Christ Jesus so that we could receive the promised spirit through faith. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. We hold these truths to be self evident that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, and that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit. Of happiness. I presume that all of you are familiar with these words, that you have enough memory of, I don't know, whatever eighth grade history where you learned the Declaration of Independence. But that last phrase, the pursuit of happiness, it was not coined by Thomas Jefferson or the other founding fathers. They borrowed it from an English philosopher named John Locke in his 1681 essay concerning human understanding. And John Locke says of this. Phrase, the pursuit of happiness, that it is the foundation of all human society, that it is the foundation of morality, and that it is the foundation of liberty and freedom. That human beings be able to pursue happiness, he says, is the foundation of all these good things. Now, Locke was not talking about the freedom to go and have an amazing cup of coffee on a Saturday morning. Uh, He wasn't talking about the freedom to to go and do things that you enjoy doing, the pursuit of happiness, even in things like family or having children, though all of these are good things. He was talking about something else. He was talking about what we might call a sort of capital H happiness, a deep and abiding soul level satisfaction. Satisfaction. Locke was drawing on a much older tradition that, in Christian writings, is found in the works of St. Augustine. In his book, On the Trinity, Augustine makes the case that every single person wants more than anything else to be happy. Again, using this kind of capital H, happy, that every single person, no matter what their circumstances, no matter where they're from, is driven by, essentially, the pursuit of happiness, to use biblical language that, that may sound for, more familiar with us, what they're talking about is, is blessedness. It's, it's being blessed, living a blessed life. The Bible in various places talks about being blessed, and two of the most common ones, Psalm 1 and the Sermon on the Mount, the Beatitudes where Jesus says, blessed is the person who does X, Y, and Z. Uh, both of those, both in the Psalm 1 and the Hebrew and Matthew 5 in the Greek, use words that could just as well be translated happy. We read the words blessed, but they could just as well be translated as happy. And so the, the Bible agrees with Augustine, agrees with John Locke, agrees with the Declaration of Independence, that all people are on this pursuit of happiness. But I want to make the case to you, that nobody ever really gets it. At least not in a full and final and ultimate sense. Why? Here's three reasons why we all fail to arrive on our pursuit of happiness. One is we're just not good enough. Uh, We look around at the world, we kind of survey the landscape and we, we make this list of ingredients of all the things that we think that we need to have a happy life, a good life, and then we go pursue them, right? A, a certain job, make a certain amount of money, get into a certain school, get married, have kids, and we just don't, we don't get those things. And, and in our world, we have this constant comparison, comparison machine called Instagram that's reminding us that everybody else is good enough to achieve the happy life, but we're not. So we're just not good enough. The second reason is uh, the happy life, the good life, the blessed life is a moving target. So you, 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 you know, set out your list of things that you think you need to get, and you get some of them, and you realize that they don't deliver on what they said they would, and so you have to start looking for it somewhere else. When I was growing up, I played golf uh, as a kid and in high school and college, and one of the things that is a favorite pastime of golfers is you go to the driving range, which is where you practice, you hit a bunch of balls, and if you've ever been to a driving range, there's like a 1,000 golf balls just strewn across you know, this several hundred yards of land. And the way that they pick it up is somebody goes out in a golf cart that's basically in a cage, and it has this mechanism attached to it that as it rolls over the golf balls, it picks them up. And a favorite pastime of young golfers is seeing how many times we can hit the guy who's out picking up golf balls. In fact, one time when I was eight or nine years old, the guy told me he would give me a dollar for every time that I hit him, and I'd like to think that he wasn't expecting to pay me as much as he had to pay me at the end of that. But it's hard because it's a moving target, right? Like you think you've got them, and then at the last second they slam on the brakes, or they turn in the other direction, or you miss them by just a couple feet. It's, it's much harder than hitting a target that's sitting still, and happiness works this way in our lives. We, we find the thing that we thought was going to give us a happy life, marriage, or kids, or a raise, or a new home, or whatever, and you find that you're still, you're still searching, It doesn't give you what you thought it was going to give you. The third reason that we don't arrive on our pursuit of happiness is that in the end, death takes everything. This is one of the main themes of the Old Testament book of Ecclesiastes. You can can work and work and work all your life. You can build up a successful career, you can have an amazing family, and in the end, one of two things is gonna happen. Either you're gonna die and you can't enjoy it anymore, Or you're going to live long enough to see everybody around you die, in which case you're going to lose the happiness that you found. We all are motivated by this pursuit of happiness, but it eludes us. But I want to make the case this morning that this blessed life can be yours, but it will require a radical reorientation in your understanding of, one, what it is, and two, how you actually get it. So the the good life, the happy life, the blessed life can be yours, but it will require a radical reorientation in your understanding of both what it is and how you get it. So Paul says, look with me at verse 14. He refers to this word blessing, right, the blessed life, and he refers in particular to the blessing of Abraham, and he says that it can be ours. So we need to know, what is that? What is the blessing of Abraham? Well, this takes us back to Genesis chapter 12, but really for context, it takes us all the way back to the very first chapter of the Bible. So think with me. In Genesis 1, God creates the heavens and the earth in six days, and every day he looks at what he's made and he says, it's good, it's good, it's good. Then he gets to human beings, and he says, it's, it's very good. And he blesses them, and he tells them to be fruitful and multiply. And in chapter 2, it zooms in on the first two humans, Adam and Eve, and it says that they live in this idyllic place that we call the Garden of Eden, and that in some amazing way that we can't wrap our heads around, that God would walk with them in the cool of the day. He would come down to the garden, and he was with them. God's presence was there in this particular place. But that idyllic scene doesn't last very long. We get to chapter 3, and this snake slithers up into the garden and starts telling Eve some things. And in doing so, starts to sow seeds of doubt in her mind. And this is the moment when the lie that the good life is to be grasped and not received lodges itself into the human heart. Because what does Satan, in the form of the serpent, say to Eve? He says, did God really say? Did God really say that? And then he goes on to tell her even more, no, no, no. The reason God doesn't want you to eat the fruit isn't because of that. It's not for your good. It's because he's holding out on you. There's something good. There's a a blessing. There's a good life that God wants to keep from you. And so in order to have the good life, you actually need to reach out and grasp the fruit rather than receiving it from God in faith. And so they believe the lie. They reach out. They try to take the good life on their own. And what is the consequence? Well, among other things, they lost God's presence and they lost access to this particular place. They're exiled from the garden. They're told, you have to leave here, you can't come back. And they lose the special presence of God with them. You fast forward Genesis 4 through 11, things get worse and worse. The very next chapter, you have Adam and Eve's sons, Cain and Abel. Cain killing Abel, why? In part because he's jealous because God blessed Abel's sacrifice and not Cain's. You go on, there's more fighting, killing, injustice. God starts the whole thing over through a flood, and the first thing that happens is debauchery, right? Noah gets wasted as soon as God has saved him from the flood. Things get worse again. We get to Genesis chapter 11. The Tower of Babel. And what is the Tower of Babel? It is the ultimate display of trying to achieve blessing by human power. We're just going to build a tower that takes us all the way up into heaven so we can become gods ourselves and we can tell the whole world, look how awesome we are. Look at what we've made. We can achieve the blessed life through our own work and ingenuity and creativity and technology. Of course, God scatters them. And you get to chapter 12, and the scene changes, and it zooms in, and out of nowhere, God makes this promise to a man named Abraham. And what does he promise him? Well, among other things, he promises, again, that his his presence will, again, be with people. He says, I will be with you. I'll be with you and your descendants. I will be your God, and you will be my people. He promises to restore his presence, and he promises to give them a place. He says, I will give you a land, this specific land, Canaan. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. And yet, Abraham and his descendants are just like Adam and Eve. They don't trust that God is going to bless them. And so they reach out and grasp it on their own. You see just a couple chapters later. So Abraham, you know, part of this promise is, I'm going to give you offspring, Well, Abraham says, me and my wife are like a bajillion years old. How are we gonna have kids? And God says, trust me, I promised it, I'll make good on it. And some time passes, and it's not happening, and so Sarah says to Abraham, why don't you go and sleep with my handmaid, and she can have the child of the promise. She's younger, and Abraham does it. Why, he's grasping, because he doesn't trust God. Abraham's grandson, Jacob, he's a twin. He comes out second, so technically he's the younger son. Uh, but God reverses the pattern of blessing the oldest child. He says, I'm going to bless Jacob instead of his brother Esau. But Jacob, as he grows up, and his mom, he was a mama's boy, she was, he was her favorite, they didn't trust that God's promise would come true. And so what do they do? Instead of just receiving the blessing, they devise this plan to trick his father to steal the blessing. Eventually, God, you know, the people go to Egypt, they're enslaved, God delivers them, he frees them, he leads them through the wilderness for 40 years, and then he gives them the land that he promised them. He said, this is the land that I promised Abraham, and here you are, you're in it, and they get into the land, and God says, I'm your king, I'm your father, I'm gonna be good to you, I'm gonna take care of you, and they say, no, we want a king like the nations. God says, that's not gonna go well for you. They say, we don't care, we want a king like the nations. He says, okay, here's all the things that the kings are going to do to you. They're gonna take your sons and your daughters. They're gonna drive you into idolatry. They're gonna do all these things. They say, we don't care. We want a king like the nations. So God says, fine, you can have a king. And the kings do exactly what God said they would do. They lead the people to injustice and idolatry and the people turn to other nations and other gods for help. And things eventually get so bad that what happens? In the book of Ezekiel, we get this dramatic picture of God's presence leaving the temple. The temple is the place where people would worship. It's the place where God's presence dwelt again with the people in a particular place, and God's presence departs from the temple, and they lose their place. They're actually exiled, taken up by Assyria and Babylon, and removed from their land. Sound familiar? Same thing as Adam and Eve. Now, my hope is that this, this narrative should start to help reorient our understanding of blessing. Those two questions. First, what is blessing? God's blessing is his presence. It's his presence with us. We saw this a few weeks ago in Galatians 2.20. It's not just, it's not just like in Eden when God was near Adam and Eve. It's not just like in the Old Testament when God's presence would come onto people for a while and then leave. It's not, just that, that it's not even just that Jesus is walking on earth among us, but it's that the Holy Spirit actually comes to dwell within us. The blessing of Abraham, the presence of God, is that God is not just with us, not just near us, but he is in us. Verse 14, again, the end of it. This was so that we could receive the promised spirit. Now, just stop and reflect for a moment. Just a little aside, is that enough for you? If you had none of the other things in life that you think of as blessings, but you knew that you had God's spirit within you, or if you could have all the other things that you think of as blessings and not have God's spirit within you, which would you choose? Is it enough for you that God has promised you his presence? God's blessing is his presence. God's blessing is also a place. Now, God promised Abraham and his descendants a particular land called Canaan. But there's this interesting chapter in the New Testament, Hebrews 11. It says that many of the Old Testament saints died in faith, although they had not yet received the things that were promised. And he says they were seeking a homeland. And the author points out that many of the Old Testament saints saw the promised land, And many of them even lived in the promised land, but he says they desired a better place, a heavenly one. And God has prepared a city for them. The promise of a place was all along not about a particular plot of land. (laughs) It's not contrary to a, a prominent stream of American theology. It's not fulfilled in the physical restoration of the Jewish people to the land of Canaan. The promise of a place is fulfilled in the heavenly city that God is preparing for his people, both Jews and Gentiles, that will one day come down from heaven and invade earth as the two become one, and God will dwell with us. And that place, we read, is made of streets of gold. There's no more death. There's no more sickness or sadness or sorrow. God will wipe away every tear from our eye, and he will be with us. The promise of a place The blessing of God is is a restoration of Eden, but even better. It's not just this tiny garden. It's all of creation. What does it mean to be blessed? It's not to be rich in material things. It's not to have an easy or comfortable life. It's not getting a last second parking spot when you're running late. It's not getting a scholarship to the school of your dreams. It's not making lots of money in a career. It's not good health and living to an old age. It's not a thriving marriage and well-behaved kids. Listen, there is nothing in your life, I'm gonna say this and then I'm gonna nuance it. There's nothing in your life that another believer in Jesus doesn't have. And there's nothing in your life that an unbeliever in Jesus does have that is a blessing, properly speaking. A spiritual blessing, a capital B blessing. Sure, those things are good gifts, right? They they make life more enjoyable, right? A nice home, a family, friends. These things are good gifts from God, as Jesus said himself. God makes the rain fall and the sunshine on the just and the unjust, but they're not blessings in the proper sense of the word. They don't contribute to the capital H happy life that Jefferson and Locke and Augustine wrote about. How do I know this? Look at the life of Jesus. Was Jesus blessed? It's not a trick question. Yes, (laughs) he's the Son of God. What did he have at the end? Nothing. Not even the clothes that were on his back. He was stripped, naked, and nailed to a cross and abandoned by everybody but his mom and a couple of other women. He had nothing, but he was blessed. He's the Son of God. And look at Ephesians 1, which we already had read to us this morning. Paul says, God has blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavens in Christ. Has blessed, that's past tense, with how many spiritual blessings? Every spiritual blessing. Which means that if you're in Christ, you already have every spiritual blessing. And that leads us to the the second reorientation that we need. How do we get this happy, blessed life. Not by earning, not by effort or grasping or work, not by grasping the forbidden fruit, not by sleeping with the handmaiden, not by deceiving your dad and stealing the blessing, not by asking for kings like the nations, not by turning to other gods. And according to Galatians 3, not even by obeying the law, not even by being really religious, not even by being really moral. Remember, what is the law? We said a few weeks ago that the, the phrase the law is used in at least six different ways in the New Testament, which makes it really complicated to nail down what Paul's talking about. But we kind of summed up the law as the divine standard for our lives. And Paul says that everybody who relies on works of the law to earn God's blessing is actually under a curse. It's not possible to be good enough, moral enough, obedient enough to earn God's blessing. You can't do it. You can't be good enough. And there's nothing that you can do, whether moral performance or just anything that you can accomplish in your life, a successful career, an amazing spouse, a big house, money, sex, power, politics, your religion, nothing of these can de- none of these can deliver the happy life that every single person is looking for. A few years ago, the son of the head coach of my favorite basketball team was on the team. And this is an elite program. And this coach's son was like a five foot 10, kind of chubby white guy who maybe had a couple offers at small schools, but ends up playing for this powerhouse blue blood program. And his freshman year, a picture went viral of him with his shirt off, flexing, with a huge tattoo across his chest that said, Earned, not given as if the message was, I belong here, I've earned my place here, it was not given to me. And the joke, of course, was that everybody knew he had not earned it, and it was given to him. There's something about the human spirit that wants to say, I earned this. It wasn't given to me. The blessed life is given, it's not earned. There's nothing that you can do to earn it. There's nothing that you can do to contribute to it. It's given and not earned. And here's the... for some of you, that's going to land as hard news. But, but for some of you, if you've messed up your life over and over again, if you can't get out of your own way, if you keep failing, if your life at this point looks nothing like you hoped it would, if you don't feel happy, if you've, you've, if you've maybe gotten what you thought you needed to be happy and it hasn't delivered, or if you've watched death take away the good things around you, the the good news for you is that you can still have the life that you were made for. You can still have the blessed life. You can still have the happy life. How? Through Christ. Now, The thing about covenants and promises in Abraham's culture, the ancient Near East, was that they came with not only blessings attached, but also curses. Uh, Back in Genesis, you read about the, the covenant ceremony between God and Abraham. And this was pretty typical for the ancient Near East, but what's atypical about it is that there are no conditions given. So the covenant between God and Abraham is modeled on a particular type of covenant where a stronger nation would take a weaker nation and say, we'll protect you, we'll take care of you, you can kind of you know buddy up with us, but here are the conditions, and if you don't meet the conditions, this is what's going to happen to you. If we don't meet our conditions, this is what will happen to us, and if you don't, then this is what will happen to you. God doesn't list conditions for Abraham. He just waltzes right up to him and starts making promises. I'm going to give you a child. I'm going to give you offspring. I'm going to give you land. I'm going to bless you and bless your offspring. It's not based on Abraham's religion, his morality, his character, either before the covenant when he's most likely a pagan or certainly after the covenant when he acts like a buffoon. But he, God enters into this ceremony with Abraham and, and what God tells him to do is take these animals and cut them in half. That sounds really, really weird to us, but this is a typical way of enacting a ceremony. This is like signing a contract uh, in our day. You should be really glad that we just signed contracts now. Uh, but he tells them to cut these animals in half and put the halves on two different sides and create a sort of aisle. And what people would do is they would walk through the bloody halved animals to, to sign the contract as if to say, if I don't make good on my end of the bargain, may this happen to me. May I be torn apart like these animals. So Abraham does what God says. He, he cuts the animals in half. He creates this aisle. But then a deep sleep comes over him. He doesn't walk through the animals. And instead, he has this vision of a smoking fire pot and a flaming torch that appear and pass between the divided animals. What's going on here? Well, fire in the Bible is often a symbol of God's presence, Abraham doesn't walk through, but God does. What is God saying? He's saying, if I'm unfaithful to my end of this covenant, may this happen to me. And Abraham, if you're unfaithful to your end of this covenant, may this happen to me. (laughs) But why, why two things? Why the fire pot and the torch? I think because in this covenant ceremony, you have both God the Father and God the Son walking through. And God is not just saying, Abraham, if I'm unfaithful to my end of the covenant, may this happen to me. And if you're unfaithful, may this happen to me. He's saying, if I'm unfaithful to my end of the covenant, may this happen to me. And if you're unfaithful, may this happen to my son. And it did. God promises to give us the blessing, but it's only possible because he took the curse. And you look at verse 13. Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. The purpose, Paul says, was so that the blessing of Abraham could come to the Gentiles. We deserved a curse, but Jesus took our curse. He deserved the blessing, but we get his blessing. On the cross, Christ was torn apart so that you could be made whole. On the cross, he was broken so that you could be put back together again. On the cross, he was cast out of God's presence and place so that you could be brought into God's presence and place. On the cross, he was cursed so that you could be blessed. Psalm 1, which I alluded to earlier, says how happy is the one who lives according to God's law. He will become like a tree firmly planted and bearing fruit, but the person who doesn't, become, who doesn't obey God's law, the psalm says, will become like chaff that's just tossed into the wind and blown away. And we, you and I, have not lived according to God's law. We've sinned this morning. We've sinned since this worship service started. But Jesus did live according to God's law. And on the cross, he became like chaff so that we could become the tree that Psalm 1 talks about. Deeply rooted, firmly planted, bearing fruit in season. The happiness, the thriving and joyful and good life that every soul longs for is available to you. It's available to you free of charge, but you've got to stop working for it. You've got to stop working for it. You've got to stop grasping after it. Instead, you've got to just open your hands and receive it through Christ. Receive it in Christ. Our Father, we thank you for Christ who on the cross was torn apart because of our sins and yet went there willingly, lovingly, I pray, Father, that this truth would move us this morning, maybe for the first time, but maybe again, just would move us to worship you, to love you, to take hold of the life that is available to us, the the flourishing life, whether our outward circumstances would indicate blessing or not, that we would take hold of a life of true blessing. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.